Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net with your host, Steve Feldman. Getting Better Healthcare is the show about the healthcare system. This isn't a show about specific diseases or specific treatments. We may cover those things to illustrate the different aspects of our healthcare system, but this show is about the complexity of our healthcare system, of understanding that system, of understanding what you need to know to get the best possible care and what you need to do to avoid the potential pitfalls. In addition, we like to discuss ways our health system can be improved. In fact, our health system has been called a non-system because it's composed of so many different parts. By understanding it better, we can improve it and we can work within it to get great medical care. Part of the complexity of our healthcare system is it's built of different parts. Sometimes there's poor communication between those parts. We have the hospitals, different doctors that we may see, laboratories that are separate from the doctors, um, other ancillary services, the medicines we use. Poor communication between different components or poor interactions between these different components can cause problems. Even within a single hospital, there may be different departments whose communication is either good or poor, depending on how the things are arranged. In any one of the parts of the medical care system, the perspective of the system differs. So patients, well, we see this complex system. Doctors have a, have a different view from the inside. The hospital administrators have a different view too. The different view we have can really cause some some major communication problems, major misperceptions. My favorite example is based on my experiences in dermatology. You know, I've been practicing dermatology for nearly 20 years, and, and I like to point out that in those 20 years, I probably could still count on, on my fingers the number of times I saw a patient for a rash that, fa- that their, the patient's family physician had managed to cure. I mean, I could, I, I, I've seen countless times when I've seen a patient who got the wrong diagnosis, got the wrong treatment, maybe got treatment that made things worse from their family doctor. But it's very, very rare for me to see a patient uh, for a rash the family doctor managed to cure. Now, many people wonder if, if that's indicative of the family physician's training. turns out that when the family physician makes the right diagnosis, prescribes the right treatment, and the patient's rash gets better, the patient doesn't go to a dermatologist. And so I never see any of the primary care providers' successes. I tend to only see their failures. It gives me a very warped perception if I didn't realize that I'm seeing things from my own compartment and not seeing what's really happening in the other parts of the system. Well, today's guest has a very unique perspective on the healthcare system. Our guest, Tom Comerford, is a medical malpractice attorney who works on behalf of plaintiffs. Now, this puts him in a very interesting position with regard to the kinds of things that come to his attention with regard to medical care. Who's coming to see him? Well, it's people who've had a problem, patient after patient who has a problem. Now, his perceptions may not be representative of the norm, but it's still a very good perspective for us to understand and to hear about because he sees the problems. Perhaps he can help us avoid those problems in the future. We'll be speaking to Tom today about the common misperceptions that many people have about malpractice suits, and we'll try to cover 
because uh, healthcare reform is such an important topic, uh, the issues surrounding medical malpractice and, and whether it has an important role to play in healthcare reform. And remember, um, being a plaintiff's malpractice attorney, Tom's going to have a perspective on this that may differ from your doctor's perspective on it. Finally, and maybe most importantly, we'll talk to Tom about those things patients can do to empower themselves to get great medical care. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks so much for being on. Well, thanks for having me, Steve. My pleasure. You know, I'm a physician. And so, um, you know, we, we physicians have a very different perspective on the healthcare system than, uh, than you might have. Tell me, um, your perspective is that of somebody who handles uh, medical malpractice for plaintiffs. That's right, Steve. I, I do medical malpractice cases. Uh, in addition to that, I handle aviation cases, catastrophic injury cases. But but the medical cases are probably at least 30, uh, 30 to 40 percent of my work. Oh, very good. Now, medical malpractice is in the news. Tort reform is always in the news. And I think... Um, because of health care reform and because of physicians' desires to see something happen with tort reform, I think they bring this issue up now. But before we get into health care reform, let's just talk a little bit about malpractice in general. And, and, and what it just seems to us doctors that it's this enormous risk that's happening all the time. Is that really what's going on? Well, uh, there are a lot of studies that would indicate that there is a fair amount of malpractice that occurs in uh, in this country, there are studies uh, that have been done that show that uh, something on the order of 100,000 or more people die each year in this country from medical negligence. So uh, it's an issue, and it, and it, is, a, it is a problem that has to be dealt with. Now, now that 100,000 number, I've heard that thrown around over and over again, and it's always referencing an Institute of Medicine report. I think I'm going to have to pull that report and maybe do an entire show devoted to that number to to really understand uh, where that number comes from. Well, I, I cannot cite it, give you the citation for it. I do recall another study that preceded it that was done by the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine uh, that came to this conclusion, and that was that out of all the medical cases that they could study and find, that is, where there was a breach of the standard of care, uh, they felt from the research that they had done, less than one-fifth of those cases ever resulted in any sort of claim being made. So episodes of some kind of, of medical negligence, actual negligence, are pretty common, but that they don't, that, that me actual medical malpractice cases are much less common. Well, that's true, and, and, you know, there may be some misconceptions about it that are interesting to think about. One is, uh, uh, is this number that I'm about to talk about. Uh, we, have, we hear that there is an epidemic of medical malpractice cases, that there are too many medical malpractice cases being filed, and I think any doctor who ever uh, had a medical malpractice case brought against him that he thought was unjustified would think there were too many. But sure. it's interesting, if you look at, uh, our state is about the 10th largest state in the, in the country. You know, something on the order of 9 million people in the state, 100 counties, uh, a number of major medical centers uh, handling uh, some high-risk practice uh, in the state. Uh, in the state of North Carolina, uh, 
in the last period that, that there's detail available on this, there was something on the order of 450 medical malpractice cases filed in the entire state of North Carolina. So if you applied that to the number of doctors and certainly to the number of populations, it was it would be an almost statistically insignificant number. And indeed, lots of counties will never see a medical malpractice case even filed during the course of a year. You know, I can hear, I can practically hear the doctors in Florida and Pennsylvania, you know, calling, calling a travel agent to find out, you know, what would be involved in moving to the North Carolina area. Well, we have uh, actually enacted in North Carolina a number of the uh, safeguards against what you might think of as irresponsible medical malpractice cases that are being bandied around about the country now as things that would be uh, reasonable steps to take to avoid uh, wrong kind of cases being brought against doctors. Now, wrong kind of cases, you know, we, we doctors, when we see a malpractice, when we see a, 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 an attorney specializing in malpractice bringing a case against us, they are always bringing the case against us. We never see any of the cases that you guys turn down. We don't even know that you ever turn down a case um, because that's just not from our compartment, from our perspective, the medical center, we never get to see those. Uh, is a lot of the, what you would call wrong cases, just already screened out by plaintiff's attorneys? Well, let me tell you a little bit about how we get our cases and how we look at cases, because that's, that's obviously the, uh, the thing I have the most knowledge about. In our firm, uh, we look at approximately... 35 cases for every one that we take. That wow, 35 to 1. And I have kept, I still keep my time of the things that I do in, in cases, and uh, I've found over the last few years, I spend about 80 hours a month looking at cases that I don't take. Well, that is sort of what I would have expected, even though from my compartment in the system, that's not my, my that's not what I would have observed. There must be a lot of steps that a patient has to go through before they ever reach court. I mean, it's, one of the steps, it sounds like, is finding an attorney that's even willing to take their case. Well, that's true. And uh, in, in our firm, we don't do any sort of advertising of our services. And most of our cases then come to us from other lawyers who have uh, been approached by a patient who thinks they may have a case. And then we look at the case, and, and, and there are really three things that we're looking for, Steve. One, uh, was there a breach in the applicable standard of care? That's the first thing we need to think about. Um, secondly, if there was a breach, did that make any difference in the outcome of that patient? That is, was there a proximate cause of the plaintiff's injury, the patient's injury, because of something the doctor did or didn't do? And then the third thing is we have to look and see was the patient substantially injured by this breach of the standard of care that caused a bad outcome to occur? Because these cases are very expensive to prepare, very expensive to take through discovery, very expensive to bring to trial. So we have to make the decision that there is a substantial injury involved before we can make the substantial investment that's involved in bringing one of these cases. I understand, then, there's three things. One, 
Did they breach the standard of care? Did they, did they do something wrong? Did, did the doctor do something wrong that a, a reasonable doctor in their community uh, wouldn't have done? Second, did the error that the physician make result in some injury? And then third, was that injury substantial enough, I guess financially or in other ways, to make it worthwhile to bring a case? There's several things going on here. There's the... Um, you, you have a first a screening process already being done. Before you even reach the 1 in 35 cases that you look at, presumably the lawyers who are coming to you, they've turned down a lot of things already. Uh, that's a good point. And, and you know, there's certainly, uh, I would estimate, uh, at least 10 times the cases that we look at uh, have already been pre-screened and, and, and not taken by a lawyer uh, who otherwise might have referred that case to us. So that would suggest to me that something may be on the order of one out of 350 cases are who knows? worthy of, of being brought. Yes. Now, are there other complexities, other issues that, 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 that are involved, finding experts, um, uh, timing, um, other issues that get in the way of, of a medical malpractice case? Well, there absolutely are. Uh, as you can imagine, there uh, may be a reluctance of, doctors in uh, the same community where the doctor is, uh, who may ultimately be sued is practicing to be an expert in that case. Uh, very often we look outside of state to find those experts, and we, we spend a lot of time looking at medical journals, uh, looking uh, at uh, articles on the Internet about things that doctors have written about various procedures, trying to find out who are the real experts in uh, the area of medicine that we're dealing with, and we spend a lot of time being educated by those experts, uh, uh, very often about why there's not a case, not why there is a case. Is part of North Carolina's medical malpractice law, um, one of the issues you said that other states are considering as far as reasonable uh, rules are concerned, do they, do they affect the the experts that you can choose. Well, that's true. North Carolina has a somewhat peculiar rule in that regard. Uh, North Carolina has followed for a number of years what's called the locality rule or the community standard rule. And essentially, uh, that is a rule that started out with a good and reasonable purpose, and that is that a physician uh, practicing in a remote location without all of the um, resources available to treat a patient should not be held to the same standards for treating that patient that a physician at Wake Forest University or Duke University or Carolina's Medical Center or one of the fine institutions that we have in this state. makes lots of sense. The, the problem with that is that most physicians can understand how that could be the case because they understand as OBGYN physicians or general surgeons or uh, neurosurgeons, or cardiothoracic surgeons, that they practice a national standard of care, that they uh, have been educated at the same schools, that educate other doctors, that they've taken uh, board certification tests that are the same in California as North Carolina. So they are a bit puzzled sometimes by uh, the requirement that they be familiar with the standard of care in Winston-Salem or Charlotte if they happen to be practicing in Chicago or Boston. Uh, but that is uh, uh, it's a little bit of a legal fiction in most cases, 
but it's the rules that we practice under, and, and we uh, are obliged to find physicians who can testify about what they think the standard of care was in Winston-Salem if, if that's a community an issue at the time the treatment was provided. I think I've had attorneys send me the demographics on various counties so that I could bone up ahead of time to to help justify the fact that I understood what the community standard would be in a certain location. I imagine there's there's some of that sort of thing going on. Are, are there also rules that would, say, cut back on, say, some retired physician who's no longer practicing, who simply, um, you know, does malpractice work for a living, uh, serving as an expert? Uh, not in North Carolina. Uh, one of the things our legislature looked at long ago was uh, a rule to do away with the professional witness and uh, or to do away with the uh, witness who has uh, become a professional witness in his retirement mm -hmm. after he has quit practicing medicine. So essentially, any physician that testifies in a medical case in North Carolina has to have been doing the procedure or providing the treatment that's an issue uh, during the one year up until the time that the event occurred, and he has to have been involved in a clinical practice for more than half of his practice during that time. So it does uh, equate to a doctor who, who knows what the current status of the medicine is. So you put all this together. You've, got, you've, you've found experts. You, you have a plaintiff, a, a patient, who was treated in such a way that it violated the standard. That, that violation did something significant, and it resulted in a significant injury, and significant meaning big enough that it's worth everybody's time to proceed. It's still difficult to win, isn't it? Well, they're tough cases, and, uh, and they probably should be. Uh, most people have a lot of respect for doctors, and that, that respect is, is well-placed in most cases. Uh, most people are, are reluctant to do things that they think would be damaging to the medical profession, and we certainly don't want to see that happen in our practice either. Um, and we have a climate now that, that can make the trial of medical cases even more difficult than, than it has been in the past, and I, I think we've all seen the pendulum swing back and forth in that regard during, during the course of our careers. But, uh, yes, they're, they're challenging cases, and... Uh, I will sit down and talk with folks in a commercial airline case and tell them, more than likely, we're going to win this case on liability. I can't tell you what the, what the damages will be, but we'll win the case as far as uh, holding the airline liable for killing your husband. If we are looking at a medical case, I never make that statement. I tell them that they're difficult cases, that we don't take cases we're not willing to try, but that we could try this case and lose it. So... You're taking a lot of risk. So I guess that, that raises the next question that people are probably wondering about is where the money goes when you do win the case. Well, there is, there's a great deal of risk in the case. Um, the interesting thing about where money goes from medical malpractice cases is the, the short answer is most of it goes back to the medical profession. For example, if you represent... Uh, a young couple who has a baby who's brain injured during a, during a delivery uh, and is going to be afflicted with cerebral palsy for the rest of his life and need medical care, the money uh, that the jury returns a verdict for 
uh, is typically for a life care plan to take care of that child. And if everything goes as expected, that is, the child lives to the life expectancy that uh, the jury determines from the evidence that he or she will have and needs the things that uh, are provided in the life care plan, theoretically on the last day of that child's life, the last nickel would be spent, most of it going to the medical profession. Now that is an interesting perspective that I had not heard before. Well, and we try to make that point to jurors. Um, and, you know, for, particularly in a medical community like Winston-Salem, they are very likely to be the community where children injured by medical negligence get sent for help or people who need specialists come for help. But there's, there's more to it than the money going to the doctors. Uh, for example, most, most parents uh, who have a brain-damaged child, almost irrespective of what their personal financial situation uh, may be, are not in a position to take care of the needs of a child throughout his or her lifetime. And a good deal of that is likely to be taken care of by our social programs such as, as Medicaid. And we see literally in this country tens of millions of dollars go back to the states every year uh, from money recovered in medical cases to pay for the uh, Medicaid services that were provided, uh, for example, to a child. Or if the patient is an elderly patient, uh, go back to Medicare to reimburse the government for uh, the services provided to that person. Uh, moreover, there are more and more often uh, what we call ERISA uh, health insurance policies that are involved. And that's policies that are provided by the employer, employer-funded policies that um, uh, permit the employer to recover back uh, through his insurance company for any expenses to take care of an employee who's injured by the negligence of a third party. So if those if those expenses are incurred because of a negligent truck driver or a negligent airline pilot or a negligent doctor, uh, those monies will go back to the insurance company. So you can quickly see that, that lots and lots of money uh, are, is going to go either to the medical profession or to the federal government or state government or to employers to uh, shift, shift the risk uh, to one segment of society uh, for a loss that's been caused by the negligence of another party. So it sounds like many times the bulk of the money ends up going back to the medical profession, the insurers, one way or the other. Uh, certainly some is, is appreciable portions going to the plaintiff's attorney. They're taking a big risk and putting a lot of time and effort into these cases. And then, um, and then presumably the patients come back Maybe it's not as lucrative for patients as one might have guessed. Well, it's, there's never been an instance in, in my knowledge where uh, somebody has gotten a large verdict in a medical malpractice case and left the courtroom feeling like they had won the lottery. Um, the substantial verdicts accompany substantial cases. And uh, you know, one of the good bits of news you can always give somebody is to tell them that they don't have a case that warrants filing a medical malpractice case because they're simply not injured seriously enough. And the corollary of that is that uh, if you make a informed decision that a person or family uh, 
should pursue uh, a medical malpractice cases because the the damages are so substantial that uh, it, it warrants that case being filed. And uh, there's no way that someone is going to uh, uh, achieve a result in those cases that uh, results in any financial betterment to them. It, it may provide a situation where they can receive the care they need or can live with some degree of dignity that they couldn't otherwise live with. But uh, I, I'm not aware of any instance where it's resulted in a windfall. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Steve Feldman. We're talking today with Tom Comerford, plaintiff's attorney uh, who does medical malpractice work with Comerford and Britt based here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Tom, healthcare reform is in the news, and I, I keep hearing these doctors saying, boy, you know, as a component of this, we just absolutely have to have tort reform because without that, we're not going to be able to bring the cost of healthcare down. Tell me what you think about that. Well, I've I've looked with interest for the last five, six, or seven years as discussions about tort reform have taken place. And I've always come away from uh, the discussions about one aspect of tort reform, that is limiting artificially recovery to some number as being an awfully irresponsible way to approach uh, reform and also being the type of reform that's not likely to result in any of the benefits that you are looking for, and that is to protect doctors from irresponsible uh, excessive insurance rates, to keep good doctors from being driven out of the state and forced to go elsewhere, those kind of things. I I can't see how, uh, for example, applying an arbitrary limit of $250,000 to uh, the non-economic part of a lawsuit uh, can be done fairly from case to case, because you may have somebody who has a relatively minor injury, a case that that, that our firm would probably not even consider taking, um, and compare that to somebody who maybe has lost all four limbs through medical negligence and going to have to live the rest of their life uh, uh, with their just their trunk and some artificially attached limbs as a way to, to deal with all the... Uh, uh, problems that they have in their life, and to say to both of those people, the most you can recover is two hundred fifty thousand dollars, just doesn't make sense to me. Is that the most you can recover, or the most non-economic damage? Most non-economic uh, recovery, but for example, uh, in the in the loss of limb cases, we've had Steve three or four of those cases through the years. They're very often secondary to a uh, meningeal cock infection of some kind where uh, a condition like purple fulminans becomes Whoa, for our, and, and, and you have, have for, the arms amputated. Yeah, for our way. listeners that, that kind of meningococcal infection would be a, a rare but very serious bacterial infection that it sounds like you'd better catch early or else seriously bad things can happen. That's exactly right and uh, we have several clients that are living the rest of their lives without their arms and legs because it wasn't caught. And to say that those people, uh, you know, don't have things like uh, pain and suffering, uh, loss of enjoyment of life, uh, a need uh, to be compensated beyond uh, here's how much it's going to cost to have some artificial legs and and arms attached to you and have a uh, vehicle made accessible to somebody with your handicap. I get the sense that... There are already a number of breaks built into the medical malpractice system that 
that already makes it very difficult to bring cases. Well, I think you 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 see that correctly, and um, uh, but, I, I would I would actually hold North Carolina up as a pretty reasonable and conservative model for uh, lots of other states to look to as a way we have dealt with the issue in a responsible fashion. We haven't tried to limit the recovery that a patient can have in a case uh, to some artificial limit, but we have made it uh, necessary before a suit's filed, for example, that you contact a reputable expert who's prepared to testify that there was a breach of the standard of care, and the lawyer has to certify that that's been done before the suit can be filed. I get the sense, in addition to all that, that, that uh, I mean, the doctors in Florida and Philadelphia probably would like a law passed in those states saying that the jury needs to be imported from North Carolina. It needs to be people who um, still have a tremendous respect for doctors, who hold them up there along with their their preachers as uh, as, as, as trustworthy, you know, grandfatherly-like figures that – you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't pass a judgment against them unless there was something truly seriously wrong. Well, you know, we look at every case uh, from the standpoint that it will be difficult to convince a jury that a doctor in the case did something wrong. Now, there, may, Steve, there may be some exceptions to that. We see uh, some cases where we run into doctors that sometimes have come from other states that shouldn't be here practicing. For example. I, took a deposition last year of an orthopedist uh, located somewhere in the state. I won't mention where. And one of the questions we might typically ask is, have you been sued before? We started through a list of his uh, cases. He was able to remember 37 claims separately made against him uh, for negligence in the practice of orthopedists, all of which were brought to suit and resulted in either a settlement or a judgment against him. I wonder when it's that bad, if it's the quality of the care that he was giving, which certainly could have been, or simply the fact that the guy came off as a jerk in front of patients. That maybe, you know, the w w when you're practicing good medical care and things are going to go wrong, I imagine in orthopedics, things less than perfect outcomes happen. And if you're just if you're just not a people person, if you come off as appearing uncaring to patients, then your risk of having a problem in the malpractice world is much higher than if you show the fact that you are, you know, doing your best and and, and, and truly care about your patients. No question about it. And uh, this doctor, I think, satisfied both criteria. <laughs> he was practicing some bad medicine yeah. and doing it without much of a bedside manner. Well, I, I, my, my general sense is that uh, while doctors would like to protect other doctors from suits when it's due to personality problems, but the doctor did everything right, that doctors really have no interest in protecting other doctors who are practicing bad medicine. I just, I just don't think that any doctor wants to see other doctors given the profession a bad name when there's so many good people, you know, working as hard as a human can work to give patients great medical care. Sure, and you know we feel the same way about lawyers. That there's a few that can can sully the whole, the whole bunch of us if they're allowed to do what they what they do unchecked. And I believe there are a there are a group of doctors who, as much as they dislike the process of being involved in a medical malpractice case, is either a party 
or a witness for either party feel like uh, being a witness is a is a responsibility they have. If they're, uh, I've heard some doctors talk about, uh, I'm not here to testify for either the patient or the physician. I'm here to testify about the standard of care, and then the judge will uh, instruct the jury, and the jury can make a determination as to whether that uh, standard of care was followed. Now that's a that's a very good way to look at it. Is it. The few cases I've been involved in, it's been extraordinarily stressful to be involved in a in a, in a malpractice case. You, you certainly um, there could be conflicts with the doctor. Your sense of you know not wanting to hurt a doctor. You don't want to hurt a patient who's already been injured. It's a it's a a tough thing to be involved in as an expert, and yet I think there is a moral obligation to do it. Well, I, I agree with you on that, and uh, actually, I have been involved in some cases as an expert for and against other lawyers, and I found both sides of that being uh, uh, unpleasant from my standpoint, but I felt like that it was my responsibility to see that uh, fact finder in the case, the jury or judge, depending on how the case was tried, uh, had a reasonable basis to make a decision about whether uh, a wrong had been committed. Well, Tom, we've talked about some important things. But there's another aspect of your experience that I think is the most important thing we share with patients today. My sense is that in your compartment of the medical care system, you're seeing all these untoward things, things that bad things that happen to patients. And hopefully we can learn from them so that they don't happen in the future. Can you share with our listeners things you've learned that will help patients avoid if we're having to worry about these kinds of problems in the future. Well, sure. I have some ideas about that, both as a lawyer and, and as a person who's been a patient and uh, uh, a lawyer who's looked at medical cases through the years uh, from both sides because there was a time in my life where most of my practice was defending doctors. Um, the thing that I think is important for anyone to do, uh, and what I've seen time and time again as being important, is the patient taking responsibility for and being proactive in his or her medical care. I love that. Patient responsibility is something we believe in very strongly on this show. And it's, it's something juries believe in very strongly. We do lots and lots of focus groups with cases. And um, probably for every case we try, we do at least five focus groups. And we learn a lot about cases, and one of the themes that runs through cases is the uh, realization that uh, the jurors are going to require that the patient be proactive and responsible in his or her health care. That's one of the things, whether it's even made an issue in the case, they're going to look, look at and try to decide to their satisfaction whether that occurred. Tom, you know, by day I'm a, a research uh, physician a physician scientist, and one of the things that we did um, was to measure patients' use of their medicine, putting computer chips in the caps of the medication containers to record when patients open and close their bottles. After our first studies, I was feeling like, man, I wish we had these kind of monitors on every bottle of pills, every tube of medicine that we ever gave to a patient because it is amazing how patients use their medications. Certainly, they're not following instructions on a regular basis. And I hope you're going to tell me that your advice to, to folks as a lawyer is to, to listen to your doctor and do what they say. 
uh, from not just from avoiding medical malpractice, from just getting good medical care. That seems to be step one to me. Well, that's absolutely the case. And, and you know, what I, I would urge listeners to think about is the fact that doctors are treating hundreds and maybe thousands of patients. You've got one case that you're concerned about, and that's yours or your daughter's or your husband's uh, care. And it's really important to uh, uh, be so proactive in that care that uh, you not only listen to what the doctor says, but you, you ask questions to be sure that you understand what you've been told, that you take notes about it, uh, write it down, uh, meticulously follow those instructions. And if you have some question about the, what those instructions are, get reassurance and get further guidance from, from the doctor. We see that time and time again as being a situation that has led to a patient's harm. That sounds like good, good advice uh, to me. I, I would hope that, you know, physicians would be giving patients instructions in writing, and I know it doesn't happen enough. Writing things down, having a buddy to, to, to take notes for you if you can't do it yourself, I think makes really good, makes a lot of good sense. The, um, you, you must, you must want to say something about avoiding that orthopedist who has the 37 judgments already against him, finding a great doctor. Right. Well, you know, I think it's a very appropriate thing for uh, jurors to make available all the information that's available to them on the Internet, and there is plenty of it. About, I'm sorry, uh, did you say jurors? I think you meant patients. Yeah. Patients. <laughs> I, uh, I may have misspoke there. Uh, uh, I'm talking about the patients making available all of the information that's available and so much that's available through the Internet about the doctor they're seeing, about that doctor's experience and training, uh, and you can also find out information about that doctor's claims history. Uh, it's a very appropriate question, I think, to ask uh, the doctor about his board certification, uh, learn about uh, his or her education, learn about his ex or her experience in that particular procedure. Uh, where he or she has practiced medicine before coming to North Carolina. Uh, doctors don't mind, it's been my experience, answering those questions. And it's, it's, a, it's better to know beforehand than afterwards whether your doctor is appropriately trained uh, to do the procedure he's about to recommend to you. Uh, the other thing that I recommend is this. Uh, most often, uh, the, the issue of a medical malpractice case is whether or not a doctor practiced inside or outside of the, stat, the standard of care, and that is whether other alternatives. So when a doctor recommends a particular course of treatment, a really good question is to ask, well, doctor, what are the other reasonable courses of treatment that I can consider? Why are you recommending this course of treatment as opposed to these others. I need to be sure that I understand that. And I don't have the experience and training that you have, so tell me that in a way that I can understand it. That's a good conversation to have with your doctor. Tom, that's wonderful advice. I want to thank you for being on our show today. Uh, it's been very enlightening, and, and you've given us some, some great things that I think will truly help patients get the kind of medical care they really deserve and hopefully avoid having to come see you later. Well, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to be a guest on your show. It's an important topic, and uh, I hope we've given the listener something to think about today. 
That was Tom Comerford, an attorney who does plaintiff's medical malpractice work. I think Tom's perspective is extraordinarily valuable to us. He ends up seeing the worst of the worst problems, the ones that weren't screened out by other attorneys. And he focuses, he screens out a lot of them in his own office, and he focuses on really the worst possible outcomes. Um, patients for whom something uh, was done wrong, something outside the standard of care, something that resulted in a problem, and then typically something that resulted in a big problem. And what I find most valuable about his experience is what it can tell us about how to avoid those kinds of problems in the future. So, so one of the key things that Tom's brings up is this point about patient responsibility. I guess he recognizes that doctors are going to mis- make mistakes sometimes. Um, they may not write down all the instructions. Uh, they may not always have optimal experience. There may be occasional doctors out there who just aren't up to the standards of the community. Tom feels, and I think it's entirely right, that patients can take responsibility to avoid a lot of these problems by being proactive, by making sure they understand uh, what the physician is saying. Uh, take notes to make sure they've got it down so that when they leave, they they will remember, they will have in writing what it was the doctor um, wanted them to do. And then Tom makes the great point that a, a patient should follow the doctor's instructions. I guess maybe Tom's been burned on a malpractice case where he lost because the patient didn't follow instructions. You know, I think this is the, a, a critical point. This is something that we doctors... Uh, would hope patients would internalize that, you know, do follow the doctor's instructions. If you have any questions about those instructions, you know, please feel free to ask. Tom says, you know, ask your doctor about his experience, his or her training. Um, you know, that's entirely reasonable. If you're about to have a procedure done, it's entirely reasonable to ask your doctor, you know, how much experience she may have uh, doing that procedure. And nowadays, with the available of information on the internet, it only makes sense to make yourself um, to, to make use of that information for yourself. So, um, in, in many states, the, the the physicians' medical malpractice claims may be public information. Go ahead, you know, if you're going to have a certainly a major procedure, you know, look up what that claims history is. You may want to know how satisfied other patients were. You can visit the website I started doctorscore.com, that's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, and see if your physician has been rated uh, and, and what kinds of levels of patient satisfaction the patients who've been there have reported. If it's just one or two um, comments, you know, take the information with a grain of salt. If it's a lot of comments, it may be helpful information. Uh, more often than not, I think it's going to be reassuring information because so many people love their doctors and, and will report that whether you love your doctor or not, please visit the Doctor Score website and rate your doctor. Uh, make sure, as Tom was saying, that you understand what the standards of care are. If you're about to have some procedure done or take some medicine, find out what the alternatives are. It may be that your doctor has a favorite medicine they like to use, but it may be that given the risks and benefits of the, of, of the, of the available options, it, 
you might choose a different path. And, and it's very reasonable to be involved in that way and work with your physician on a treatment plan that's best for you. We should keep in mind um, with this uh, episode that, that Tom Comerford, being a plaintiff's malpractice attorney, uh, has a, a different perspective than maybe uh, a, a, an attorney would who defends medical malpractice cases and certainly a perspective different from physicians. Hopefully we can get a medical um, malpractice defense attorney on uh, in the coming weeks to hear uh, their perspective on these issues, and I'll try to arrange that. Well, I want to thank you for listening to our show today. This is Getting Better Healthcare with Steve Feldman. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. I appreciate you joining us and hope you'll listen again next week.